from the Miriam Institute. This is the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast. Hello, friends. I'm Benjamin Anthony, co-founder of the Miriam Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast, or IDDF, as we like to call it. It's your bi-weekly update on all hot-button issues relating to the State of Israel. Before I turn the program over to your hosts, I'd just like to ask all of you to be sure to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review at wherever it is you download your podcast from. Doing so will help us to reach an ever-wider audience. And I thank you in advance of your partnership on that front. Now, friends... Do you remember those old tenets of respectful and substantive dialogue, discussion, and debate? I certainly do, but they all seem to be under attack. And that's why, in this era of stifled debate, the Miriam Institute is really proud to produce the IDDF podcast. It's hosted and led by Chuck Freilich, a former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor aligned with Israel's political center-left. And he'll be joined by Danny Ayalon, Israel's former ambassador to the United States of America, who's aligned with Israel's political center-right. Now, sometimes the two of them will agree, sometimes they'll disagree, but at all times, they will be bringing their storied track records, internationally acclaimed expertise, and enduring commitment to a secure and thriving state of Israel to the fore for the consideration of you, the listener. They'll discuss, spar over, and analyze matters of real consequence for Israel's future. I'm absolutely certain that you'll find the IDDF podcast as fascinating and thought-provoking as I do. Please remember, wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. Be sure to visit our website at www.miriaminstitute.com to learn more about all of our initiatives. And now, it's over to your hosts, Professor Chuck Freilich and Ambassador Danny Ayalon. Hi, Danny. Good to be with you again. <clears throat> Always good to be with you, Chuck. And today is August 23rd, and we are going to cover a number of topics today. We'll start with the renewal of ties between Israel and Turkey, and a a development of strategic importance. We will then talk about the impending crisis, and uh, it could even be a war with Hezbollah over the gas exploration. Very dangerous situation, yeah. In the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, There's the issue of uh, Russia and the closing of the Jewish agency offices in Russia. Say at least a few words about the Iran nuclear issue, whether there may or may not be a deal now and then conclude with uh, some follow-up on Operation Breaking Dawn, the recent round with Hamas in Gaza just jihad, a few weeks Islamic ago. Jihad, Islamic Jihad. With the Islamic Jihad, right. Not with Hamas. Yes, Palestine, Pij, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's the big difference, is actually that it was with PID and not with, with Hamas. So let, let's talk uh, about the renewed ties with Turkey. It's a big development. Yes, certainly a big development. Um, I, I think we are both all for it. Absolutely. Uh, it's always good to, um, to um, accept uh, 
um, let's say, um, peaceful gestures when you come out of a position of strength. And I think Israel is here in a position of strength. Uh, it was uh, actually the initiation of Turkey, which is pretty much, uh, has been very much isolated. And uh, quite contrary to uh, the um, policy of uh, Erdogan when he came into power of uh, zero uh, problems with the neighborhood, and it seems like he got almost 100% problems with the neighborhood from all over. Zero neighbors without problems. Exactly, exactly. And of course, uh, Israel uh, was uh, his uh, whipping boy, un unfortunately. And all this now uh, is, is, is changed. The big question is, uh, Chad, is whether it's going to be sustainable. And uh, what will, uh, how will Erdogan... Uh, react to uh, another round in Gaza. Uh, this last round with the pitch, the, uh, aside from a very, very, I would say, tepid uh, criticism by uh, the Turks, not even Erdogan himself, I think it went pretty smoothly. But this is maybe, Chuck, because if we go back, because it was pitch and not Hamas. Pidge is uh, pretty much uh, almost a, uh, uh, solely uh, supported by Iran. Uh, Hamas it's is an Iranian much, proxy. Yeah, uh, Pidge Bright. And Hamas is a, I would say, it's an ideological brother of the AKP, uh, the... Um, the Justice and Welfare Party, of, of Erdogan's Erdogan. party. Yeah. So um, I think here um, the Turks would not really shed any tears if a pitch of Iran is getting a blow um, as long as Hamas was not uh, involved or not uh, hurt. So first of all, we fully agree that a resumption of ties with Turkey is very important. Turkey is a major player in the region. I would say it's actually one of the three regional powers, Turkey, Iran, and Israel. And of course, um, any improvement in relations with the Turks is important in and of itself to the extent that it might somewhat counterbalance their relations with Iran. That's an added benefit. But let's go back uh, and just give our listeners some of the, the necessary background here. Turkey was the first Muslim country to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. Low-level ties as early as the 1950s and full diplomatic ties in 1992. And by the late 90s and early 2000s, the relationship was a very, very close one. It was a strategic relationship for Israel, certainly on the uh, military level, but very close economic ties as well. Turkey became a major trading partner. People started speaking of a strategic alliance between Israel and Turkey, and I think that that was overkill. It wasn't a strategic alliance. It wasn't quite that much. But there was broad uh, and really extensive military cooperation. The Turks bought lots of, lots of Israeli weapons. There was a great deal of jo uh, joint training taking place. The Turks allowed Israel to use their airspace for training, which was very important because, of course, Israel is so small and the terrain is so familiar with the pilots. They need different terrain to train over. Broad intelligence cooperation. Some people even speculated, uh, and I think this was probably too much, 
but some people speculated that Turkey might even open its airspace to Israel in the event that it ever decided to launch an attack against the Iranian nuclear program. Countries don't open their airspaces to to military attacks that easily. Yeah, that, that, that's a bit of a stretch. Um, I think it's um, it's pretty remarkable that uh, Turkey has opened its uh, airspace to uh, to commercial flights. El Al flies over it. Uh, um, Istanbul is a big hub for Israeli tourism to the east, also to uh, to the Balkans and, and to Europe. And um, it, it's very important to say that uh, through all the years of crisis between Israel and Turkey, commercial ties have never been broken. And um, quite, I would say, uh, uh, quite uh, on the contrary, uh, the volume of, of trade and economic uh, activity has gone up and up. Partly it was because of the war in Syria. Before the war in Syria, the civil war in Syria, uh, most of the, uh, um, let's say, shipments from uh, Turkey to the Gulf countries went through uh, Syria and Jordan. Since Syria was not uh, available anymore, was not safe, they asked us to do it through the Haifa port, and of course we uh, agreed. So there was a huge um, uh, import or, uh, or volume from uh, of goods and containers coming from Turkey to Haifa, and uh, from Haifa on on trucks to Jordan, where they changed back to back, and there all the way to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. So this will continue. This is quite uh, interesting. Back to what you said um, from the historic uh, proportion, it's a uh, uh, historic uh, perspective. It is. Um, it was Ben Gurion's actually um, strategy of the uh, the periphery uh, strategy, where he said, you know, we are actually surrounded by a ring of hostility, and we, the way to break it is actually to go beyond this ring to a peripheral one. Hence the uh, uh, strategic relations with the Kurds, with Ethiopia, with uh, Iran before, of course, the Islamic Revolution, and with Turkey. You also mentioned something which I think it is important to note, and rightly so. Uh, you mentioned that the three major today players or most significant uh, powers in the Middle East are Iran, Turkey, and Israel. All three are non-Arab countries in an Arab Middle East. That says a lot. It does. It says a great deal. Um, not something that the Arab countries are terribly happy about. But going back to what I was saying, that the relationship was very close and was even a strategic relationship, I think the psychological dimension here was almost as, as important as the actual strategic one, as the substance of the relationship. For us, for Israel, ties with Turkey again, the first Muslim country to have ties with us, was proof that, okay, so Israel's a Jewish country, so what? We have country, we have ties with lots of Christian countries, why can't we have them with the Muslim country? Yes, there's a conflict with the Arab states, but that's no reason not to have good relations with other Muslim countries. And Turkey was the first. Today, we kind of take it for granted, especially after the Abraham Accords, but at the time, it was very, very uh, special. 
I can even tell you, I, I was in Turkey both when I was in the National Security Council on, on an official visit, but I was also there as a tourist. And walking up to the hotel dining room and seeing a sign in Hebrew really felt very, very good. And I'm going back uh, 25 years. For Turkey, it was similarly important because in the 90s until 2002, Turkey is still under the old Kamalist governments. The Kamalist uh, uh, Kamal was the founder of modern Turkey. Uh, they were pro-Western, uh, pro-democratic. And the idea of ties with Jewish Israel for them was an affirmation of their fundamental status. A little bit like the reverse, the mirror image for Israel. And they said, so what if we're a, a Muslim country, but we are a Western democracy, we have ties with Christian states, why shouldn't we have ties with Israel? Uh, so both countries looked at this, again, it was a strong emotional element. I think the world was a, was a little bit tickled by this whole thing. And in addition to that, there was also very, very uh, a set of very, very strong, uh, close strategic interests in the 90s and early 2000s that brought us together. Yes, um, I think um, we should uh, maybe explore a little bit um, maybe the, the, the reasons why Turkey is now so, uh, um, I would say, eager to um, renew the friendship with Israel, if we can call it friendship, it's a, mostly it's a, uh, I would say, relations of um, based on on interests, and I believe that um, Erdogan has in mind three issues that he wants to tackle. First is uh, better relations with the President Biden and the United States. Secondly, um, the um, the energy um, pipes. Uh, that would go uh, gas piping that would go through Turkey to Europe and not through Greece and just Turkish exploration of the Eastern Mediterranean because we have to agree to the uh, the demarcation of the maritime boundaries exactly and the third issue is I think political interest of uh, Erdogan himself where he uh, is facing elections next year where for the first time uh, he is not the uh, absolute front-runner. His uh, polls are of uh, support are sliding, uh, mostly due to the very, very um, abysmal uh, economic conditions in Turkey, which are even growing. Catastrophic. Even, yes. So all this, and uh, so he would need to show some kind of economic hope, and that could be through um, energy cooperation with Israel. That could... Uh, put a lot of money into the uh, coffers of uh, Turkey if the gas goes through Turkey. Um, it is important for him to um, maybe go back to the uh, heydays of Israeli tourism in Turkey, which also puts billions of dollars into the economy of, uh, of, uh, of Turkey. Uh, so all this, I believe, um, has brought him together. Now, Israel's interests, and, and Chuck, you mentioned it uh, in the beginning, are quite clear. It is important for Israel. It it's certainly uh, supports its um, regional uh, status and even international status, whereby we can have uh, our increasing our, uh, let's say, uh, sphere of influence, whereby uh, today Israel can uh, contain relationship both with Greece 
Cyprus and Turkey at the same time, although we should address it later how it should be dealt with, and also where Israel continues to, um, to do what it needs to do for its own uh, security vis-à-vis Gaza and, uh, of course, uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah, and we will touch it later. I, I would say that there are two uh, uh, issues of concern to me. One is that uh, we should base this relationship on symmetry and um, reciprocity. For instance, uh, if, God forbid, we'll have another big fight in Gaza, this time against Hamas, how will Turkey react? Will it continue to bash Israel, sometimes with anti-Semitic remarks? This should not be acceptable. If there is another uh, um, flare-up on Temple Mount in Jerusalem, also uh, Turkey should stay out of it. And the symmetry here is just as we do not interfere uh, with, um, with Turkey's internal or even foreign policy. We have not criticized Turkey on uh, the Armenian um, genocide. Uh, genocide. We have not uh, done anything on that out of uh, the sensitivity to, to, uh, to Turkey. We have not criticized them on their, their Kurds uh, persecution, I would say. So just as these two issues are very sensitive and important to the Turks, they should understand that Jerusalem and security, I mean, self-defense is very important for us. So this should be, I think, on the table in order not to create um, a deterioration. Because once you put back, you bring back ambassadors, very important, very important. And this is really a, uh, a robust sign for normal normalization, better relations. When you have an ambassador on the ground, the cooperation can go up and up. Uh, but uh, we, sh- we should, I, th- I hope, make it quite clear to the Turks that they should not jeopardize this uh, normalization by, again, going back to the old rhetoric that they used, or even returning their ambassador, which creates immediately an, 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 an exponential in an expo- uh, escalation. So this is one thing which is very important. The second one is that they, uh, that, uh, they still house or host Hamas operatives in Turkey. And that also should be out of the picture, and Israel should also um, make sure that they will not keep them safe in Turkey anymore. So, of course, I agree with you in principle on everything you've said. But the question is whether you make that a condition. Okay, so the next round happens with Hamas. Uh, It could be weeks from now. Uh, It could happen with Hezbollah in the near future. What do we do when, if and when the Turks say some really harsh things again? And their rhetoric, I mean, it's one thing to criticize an Israeli action. It's another thing to come out with the simply anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, that they've used. Erdogan himself uh, calling Israel a Nazi state. Uh, I would not create a link, a direct link or a condition. In other words, I think... Well, we want to have the relationship with Turkey, and of course, if once they condemn us, we'll condemn them for having condemned us, and we can say uh, in the way that we don't interfere in your domestic affairs, don't uh, intervene in ours. 
but they'll probably do it. Erdogan, I, I don't think he can even help himself if he wants to. I think the man may be an anti-Semite. Um, and he's an Islamist. He, he's, and he's an Islamist. He's okay. a, a Hamas-type Islamist. He is. But do, do you agree? Would you also not make it an actual condition? I, I, I would have a little nuance, you know. Uh, and you're right. Inevitably, there's going to be some kind of an uh, um, outbreak of... Uh, of um, you know these slogans, these nefarious slogans of er- of Erdogan, but I think we should uh, anticipate ahead of time and work with the Turks now when the relationship when when there is calm and you can reason with each other and not wait for a crisis. So I think this is the time to uh, to arrive at some understandings with the Turks and to, to um, maybe work out some different scenarios with them in order to avert a further um, a conflict or a, an explosion in, in the future. So I think it is very, very important to sort out it now, because I think that... How do you do that? I mean, it, you... Okay, well, this is what diplomacy is all about, and well, this is where you, you need you, to... You are a senior diplomat, this so is tell where, me. Right. So this is where you should have some white paper. I don't think anyone, certainly it should not be public. Because once it's public, they will feel it as humiliation. You know, when you take things into the public, you know, that's the end of the line. It's a disconnect and just uh, from there on, it's just an explosion. So of course it has to be in, uh, in back doors, uh, diplomacy, uh, back channels. And uh, it should be as a white paper where there is an understanding, you know, and in diplomatic uh, language, uh, understanding uh, has a uh, strong meaning. Um, you know, what are Israeli interests, what are Turkish interests, so they are as, let's say, sensitive to ours as we are to theirs. And there is another issue here, which I think also can be part of the understanding, is that uh, Turkey will not use its uh, veto power in NATO in the future to block further cooperation between Israel and NATO. That's also a very important issue. Uh, I'm not convinced that we can reach the kind of understandings with them that you're talking about. We, We don't have, even with this renewal of ties, we don't have the kind of intimate relationship that we had in the past. But okay, it's certainly worth trying and hopefully at least minimizing the differences. Yeah, I simply say now it's the time to do it, not after an absolutely, explosion. Absolutely. I think it's also important to explain to our listeners why we're in this situation. In other words, why after there was this um, incredible flourishing of the relationship in the 90s and up to 2002, what happened? Well, 2002, the AKP party was elected, the Justice and Welfare Party, which started out as a moderate Islamist uh, party. As a matter of fact, in its early years, it was a very reformist party, made a lot of important uh, domestic changes in Turkish policy. Especially when Erdogan was the mayor of Istanbul. And then, no, as prime, and as prime and minister. And as prime minister. Right. Actually, he replaced Arbakan, which was the first leader, I think, of the, the, the uh, Islamist party. Of an earlier iteration yes, of, of the, the Islamist AKP, parties, yeah. right. In any event, he's elected in, uh, in November 2002 as prime minister for, I guess, until 2008 or so, uh, and then is elected president and faces elections next year once again, and now he's in trouble. 
But I think there's a common misperception which I hear many analysts making and is uh, all over the media that the downturn in relations was a result of the 2010 flotilla incident. Uh, for those who don't remember, a Turkish ship with Turkish activists, uh, the Turks would say they were human rights activists, I would say they were provocateurs and supporters of Hamas, which they were. Uh, this ship came, was intentionally sent to break the naval blockade of Gaza. And when I say naval blockade, I'm differentiating that from a, a commercial blockade. In a sense, Israel had a naval blockade to prevent terrorists and shipments of arms to Hamas in Gaza. And this ship came to break it. Israeli commandos boarded the ship, initially unarmed, and the, the Turks aboard used um, violence. A couple of the commandos were badly injured, but the end result was that actually a few of the people on the ship were killed. Now, there was a, a further downturn in the relationship after the incident, but it actually started the moment the AKP was elected eight years earlier. And um, Erdogan, just a couple of years before the flotilla incident, Erdogan is on the same stage with uh, then-President Shimon Peres at um, Davos, at the Davos conference. And he, he, Peres, he calls Shimon Peres a Nazi. I mean, it's... So... This and, is and some, he walked out of him, and turning his back to him. I mean, this is a, uh, a real affront. So actually, the ties with Israel were one of the first casualties of the AKP's election or its transformation from a moderate Islamist party to a not moderate one. Actually, the change in policy towards Israel precedes this, trans this change. It was from day one. Yeah, and um, I, would, I would reiterate that it was Erdogan single-handedly that actually worsened the relationship and um, in, in a very bad way. Uh, I think it's also important to note, and this is also something which has uh, meaningful consequences about the future relationship with uh, Turkey, and that is not to allow, and certainly not to uh, acquiesce or, or uh, invite Turkey to mediate between Israel and the Arabs, not with the Palestinians, not with anyone else. As and actually both uh, Olmert and Bibi did with the Syrians. And that was a big mistake because, uh, if you recall, um, it was cast-led operation in 2009 that uh, blew up the cork, if you will, of uh, Erdogan's uh, head, uh, or, or one of the times, you know, this was after the incident with Paris in Davos and all that, which was in 2008, but uh, just prior to, uh, to this uh, Operation Cast Lead in Gaza, four days early, earlier, Olmert visited Erdogan in uh, Ankara to discuss uh, possible uh, solutions to the conflict with Syria. And of course, uh, he, and rightly so, he wouldn't divulge any uh, operational plans that Israel had in, in Gaza. But Erdogan used it as a pretext 
and he condemned Israel and uh, and uh, Olmert on the cast-led operation, and he mentioned that he was just uh, three, four days before that in uh, Ankara, and he didn't mention it. Uh, so here again, I think this is a very point um, of um, lesson learned about the future, not to use any offices, because they are not good offices, of Turkey. I remember from my personal uh, um, experience when I was a foreign policy advisor to Eric Sharon in 2001, uh, that was before Erdogan came into power. At that time, it was still the uh, Kemalist in power. Echevit was the uh, prime minister. And he also, um, I, I, I would say, he implored Sharon, we were in Ankara um, in, in a visit, and then there were quite a few phone calls between Echevit and Sharon, and he really wanted Turkey to try and mediate between Israel and the Palestinians. At that time, it was after the outbreak of the Second Intifada, if you uh, recall, and, um, and Sharon stood fast against bringing the Turks. Because we knew, you know, the Turks, first of all, they cannot be an honest brokers because they are, uh, even though the Kamalists are not Islamists, but uh, we knew their sensitivity towards uh, Jerusalem and Temple Mount. And also, you know, once you invite somebody to mediate, uh, it, it may kind of pollute, quote-unquote, the bilateral relationship. And certainly, if you do not get into any agreement... Uh, that could harm relationship as the Turks uh, could put the uh, the onus and the blame on Israel. So this is also because I I read someplace that uh, Turkey now, after this rapprochement with Israel, may be uh, involved in some mediation with the Palestinians. I think this would be a strategic mistake, and even if the Turks ask for it, we should steadfast against it. Okay, I don't know that I would put a blanket ban on any use of their offices. I agree with you that we probably wouldn't call them good offices, but I could see certain circumstances in which we, we might want to go through them, whether it's uh, to the Palestinians, to the Iranians, uh, Maybe whomever. only on humanitarian issues or things like that, but certainly well, not on uh, political negotiations. Look, you want a mediator who you can really trust and maybe isn't totally honest uh, or balanced, but someone who you can trust. It's going to be a long time before we can trust the Turks to play important roles in this regard, before we can go back to a significant military relationship. There's a lot of um, ill will. There's a lot of baggage here that has to be overcome. And still... Uh, Anybody who can help us promote either peace or peaceful relations or just diplomatic relations with any other country, I'm willing to use them. I still would reiterate uh, what uh, uh, Secretary uh, deceased now, uh, Alea Shalom Albright, said that the United States is the indispensable country, and especially as a uh, as a uh, mediator in the Middle East. There are many things I did not agree with the Albright, but here I think she was right. Oh. There's no doubt that the U.S. is the ind indispensable state. Still. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But there are times when others can help as well. In any event, um, look, I think we started mentioning Turkey's reasons for wanting this rapprochement. First of all, what they'd like to do is, to the extent that they can, get in the way, uh, screw up Israel's relations with the Greeks and the Cypriots today. And that's uh, something that we cannot allow them. 
Greece's Turkey's historic rival, its nemesis, and Turkey, of course, has occupied northern Cyprus ever since 1974. And there's a lot of settlements there, by the way. And there are settlements there. Turkish settlements, yeah. The Turks, though, somehow, I guess, did it better than we did because nobody pays any attention to (laughs) it. Yeah. In any event, uh, so they want to get in the way of the... A tripartite relationship, and here I think we can begin to talk of an alliance, begin between Israel, Greece, and Cyprus. Uh, there's a lot of military cooperation, there's a lot of economic cooperation, including but not only the gas issue. Uh, Italy is a part-time partner to this relationship as well. Turkey wants to develop, as we said, its own resources, gas resources in the eastern Mediterranean, and it needs Greece and Cyprus and Israel and Syria and Lebanon to fully agree on the demarcation of the international maritime uh, boundaries. In any event, uh, here too, yes, I think we should explore ways to go ahead with Turkey on gas cooperation, but not at the expense of the relationship with Greece and uh, Cyprus, even if maybe there might be short-term benefits. Maybe Turkey is so interested in a breakthrough on this level at the moment that they might agree to things that they didn't in the past. I think we should tell them uh, no. Maybe don't say no, but we give preference to the relationship with Greece and Cyprus. I I, I totally agree, because the relationship with uh, Greece and uh, and Cyprus are are stable, are long-term, uh, we're talking about uh, like-minded uh, countries, uh, democracies, and um, and certainly uh, they are much more dependable and predictable than uh, what we see coming out of uh, Ankara these days. And interestingly, Greece was the last European country to establish diplomatic relations with Israel, only, I believe, in the late 90s or early 2000s. So remind me, what was uh, the reason for Greece being so Yes, well, Greece, late uh, because of, um, I would say, huge uh, Arab presence in, uh, in Greece and Palestinian presence in, in Greece, uh, Greece uh, is the closest European country to uh, our, uh, our region. There was a strong um, uh, PLO presence in office there. And if you remember, Greece, before, it be- before the democratization, they had the uh, the colonel's regime over there, which naturally sided with the Arabs against Israel. So this is why uh, I believe um, Greece was the the I would say the uh, was so late on the game joining the, the party with Israel. But now we are forward looking, and the relationship is very close. Before we turn to the next issue, I have to ask you: there was. While you were deputy foreign minister, there was a famous or infamous case of a meeting that you had with the Turkish ambassador. Yes, um, actually, it's. Uh, I, I think I'll, I'll maybe a little bit of background. Uh, see, the uh, the Turks in their uh, state-owned television had a Nazi-like portrayal of Israel they had a series which was called the Valley of the Wolves. And in this Valley of the Wolves, the Israelis were depicted as uh, Nazi uh, soldiers, 
actually breaking uh, Palestinian babies' heads and, and all kinds of atrocious uh, things. We have tried a few times to let them know that this is unacceptable. And repeatedly they did not do anything. So it was decided and recommended by the foreign um, office professional staff that we would elevate the, um, let's say, the, um, the, the contacts and the, uh, um, the marsh. You know, the, uh, let's say, uh, the marsh is, in a way, uh, you can say it like some kind of uh, reprimand uh, by um, having me as, secret, as a deputy uh, a, um, foreign minister inviting the uh, ambassador, Turkish ambassador, and tell him. Now, uh, and uh, another thing I think which is very important is, you know, uh, we wanted to show in a visual way our very discontent and, uh, and displeasure with the Turks. There is something which is called visual diplomacy, where I picture is better than a thousand words. By the way, um, I got the idea of this, uh, as they call it, the low chair uh, from President Obama. Uh, about two or three weeks before this uh, famous or infamous, as you mentioned, meeting with the Turkish ambassador in my office in the Knesset, I, um, there was a full spread a full, actually, no, it was a um, front front page, New York Times. There was a huge picture on the on the on the top half, where you see President Obama, and of course the subtitle is talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu, with the, his feet on top of the desk in the in the Oval Office, where the uh, the shoes are facing the camera. Now you don't need any more than that to show um, almost contempt of uh, Obama to Bibi Netanyahu. And you know, in the Islamic world, in the Arab world, when you show your foot or your, or, or your shoe or your soul, this is the ultimate insult. And that's all it took. And I said, wow, here Obama sent the toughest message without actually causing any uh, diplomatic incident. Nobody can accuse him, you know, just a, supposedly an innocent or a, a, a photo. So this was the idea. And um, it so happened that, you know, and again, this is something, and in brackets, the Israeli political system whereby ministers and deputy ministers are all also members of Knesset. I think it should be a firewall. We discussed it. We can discuss it more. In any case, um, so because I was also a member of Knesset and there were important votes, I had to uh, receive him in this uh, small office that I had in the Knesset and not in the foreign policy. And over foreign there, ministry. in the foreign ministry, and over there, you know, they had um, low sofas and taller chairs. So we thought, you know, just before he came into the office, wow, let's, you know, let's exploit this, this elevation difference take a photo, and this will be the photo to be released. Where was the, um, the, uh, the, the problem? Is that my uh, spokeswoman invited the press beforehand with, uh, with their cameras. Their cameras also record, and we have not noticed that they also record, and we were speaking among ourselves. 
me and my advisors talking about this uh, difference in elevation and uh, the, the, that's how we should keep it and all that. This was all recorded. And once it was recorded and it was on the air, there was no way back. You cannot put the genie back. And uh, we had to uh, uh, take care of the issue, which we did. But, uh, but this is the background for this very famous uh, diplomatic uh, incident, which is now being taught all over the world in diplomatic schools and foreign policy uh, cadets courses. Hi, everybody. I very much hope you're enjoying this episode of the IDTF podcast as much as I am. Remember, you can submit your questions and comments directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. I'd also like to invite you to visit the Miriam Institute website at www.miriaminstitute.org. There you'll be able to see the missions of the Miriam Institute and to invest in our work by way of a tax-deductible donation. Each year, our organization operates three gold standard tours to the State of Israel. The first, ISAP, brings cadets from the US and Canadian military academies to Israel for a 16-day deep dive into the strategic and policy considerations of the country. All of those cadets will go on to serve as officers in their respective armed forces. We also bring a delegation of active U.S. Army officers for a seven-day tour with the same focus, and we also bring about an exclusive tour of the State of Israel for elite graduate students from around the world, all of whom are bound for careers in policymaking and shaping. Together with our top-tier written recorded and filmed commentary, the Miriam Institute is your one-stop shop for all things Israel. Wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. And now, it's back to the IDDF podcast with Chuck Freilich and Danny Ayalon. Okay, and I'm glad you clarified this for me because I never knew the background here and I was never sure if it was intentional or coincidental. Well, it now was, we yeah, it was uh, intentional in the sense of uh, doing it like Obama did, right, in an elegant way. And it was accidental in the uh, carrying it out, which was bad, but I took full responsibility for it and um, I sent him a letter that Erdogan was very to, to the to the ambassador and Erdogan read it in front of the uh, parliament in Ankara. It was that uh, big a deal over there. Um, one thing that uh, also has to be noted, this Turkish ambassador, he sat throughout the meeting for 45 minutes. So nobody in his right mind would think that a Turkish of all ambassadors would sit in a small chair for an hour and, and accept that. So, <laughs> so the surrounding was, you know, normal diplomatic, and, uh, and he didn't mind the, the difference in heights, except when it came out into the mm. public. Yeah, the Turks have no sense of humor when it comes to their national security. <laughs> That's and my you know, experience you know, with them. You know, uh, also one of my advisors reminded us all that uh, during the Ottoman Empire, you know, during the regime in, uh, in, in the region, and when uh, we were under Turkish 
rule in the uh, cave of the patriarchs. Jews were not allowed in, and they were not allowed on the on on, on the exterior to uh, climb up uh, uh, further or higher than the seventh step. Why? So they will not be on the same level, or God forbid, higher than the Muslims inside. So it was all kind of tied in historic uh, uh, background and. Um, would have been would have been very very successful had it not been the issue with the press that was bad all right let's go on to the next issue the the brewing crisis with hezbollah it ties into what we were talking about because it's also over the eastern mediterranean gas fines a couple of months ago israel uh, brought a placed a drilling rig uh, in the Karish gas field, which is supposed to start drilling in September. Now, based on everything that I understand, there is actually no doubt that this rig is south of any definition of the border. Okay, The border with Lebanon still has to be demarcated. It's an issue that's been under negotiation for years and years. And the U.S. is now mediating that. But I think that there's basically no doubt whatsoever that this rig is simply in Israeli territorial waters. Hezbollah, specifically uh, the head of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, has come out with a series of statements of, of rising intensity over the last month or so, warning that if agreement is not reached between Lebanon and Israel over the demarcation of the maritime border. And as I said, the U.S. is negotiating this actively at the moment. If agreement isn't reached, he's going to attack this rig and potentially other gas rigs. If that happens, I think all bets are off and the distance from there to a large, even uh, major all-out war with Hezbollah is, is, is nothing. It can happen almost overnight. Yeah, here I would say that, again, um, we should look at the larger context of things. Uh, firstly is the uh, political impasse uh, inside Lebanon um, and their economic plights. Uh, they are not able even to form a government, which is a uh, precondition to any inflows of capital to Lebanon and uh, any economic reforms that the uh, IMF and the World Bank demand before they give them huge sums of, of loans and um, and secondly of course is the Iran's position and interests so they are in my mind there are two um, possibilities here one is that Hezbollah and Nasrallah which is a very very sophisticated uh, politician as well as a terrorist is uh, using the situation and the uh, the negotiations that Israel has with Lebanon on the demarcation uh, line in the, of the economic waters to use it to bolster Hezbollah's position inside Lebanon. Hezbollah has been blamed for a lot of the uh, economic uh, problems of Lebanon. Just, I think, a month ago, the, uh, there was two years anniversary of the ex huge explosion of the Beirut port, which caused uh, 200 uh, 
casualties and uh, thousands of wounds, thousands of wounds, and a lot of ruins. So, in order to avert that, and and again to show that Hezbollah is the major defender of Lebanon interest, and also to uh, to deflect accusations in Lebanon itself that Hezbollah is actually representing Iranian's interest over Lebanese, which is the, the, the true, but, you know, internally he wants to uh, show otherwise. So it seems to me that um, they are bluffing, in a way, by uh, showing a tough position and proving then to the Lebanese that had they not taken this tough position, the outcome of the negotiations would have been much worse to the Lebanese. So this is one possible uh, scenario. Uh, the second one is uh, with the Iranians' interest uh, that uh, maybe the Iranians are also using this as another, um, I would say, um, pressure point on Israel and even the United States to sign the deal in Vienna, the, the nuclear deal. There's no direct connection between the two. Except that uh, there could be that uh, if Israel relents and gives in to the Hezbollah, then Iran can be more, let's say, receptive to the final, to the, the, to the current position of the United States. So I think it all ties in a bigger uh, international game where Israel has to be here very careful. On the one hand, of course, we should very much um, stand on our rights and principles and certainly uh, uh, what is ours. And at the same time, um, not not um, break up or not escalate the situation, because at the end of the day, Israel's interest is that Lebanon will also gain and get a lot of gas out of that. It's our position. If Lebanon has nothing to lose, then we are in jeopardy. And uh, and Nasrallah is a, is is a loser. You know, he's a, he is. A, uh, he thinks maybe much less to lose than Israel does, uh, because you know Lebanon can go back into some general said into the Stone Age, but still, is it worth it even for one Israeli casualty? From our perspective, of course not. And I think Nasrallah is exploiting it at this point. So we have to um, to be very calculated in our negotiations, not to give in, but on the other hand to allow Lebanon to get some benefits out of it. So I agree with you that there were two potential explanations here. One is that he is, he, Nasrallah, is positioning himself in terms of domestic politics to show that I, he put more pressure on Israel and maybe exerted uh, further Israeli concessions, and then he can look good. And Hezbollah has not looked good in recent years in Lebanon, uh, there's increasing opposition to their role. In point of fact, there is no Lebanese state. It's it's a bit of a fiction. Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah is the Lebanese state or the de facto government. And so they've been the focus of growing criticism in recent years, uh, largely because of the economic collapse, and it is an absolute collapse in uh, Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon may be the first country in history well, it is already the first to have defaulted on debts, but may simply go bankrupt. The standard of living there has simply cratered in the last few years. And so, as you were saying, we have 
we have an interest in maintaining uh, Lebanese stability. Lebanon used to be the Arab country, other than <clears throat> some of the oil producers, with the highest uh, per capita GDP. So, okay, so one question is, one possibility is that this is grandstanding on his part for political gain. The other possibility is, of course, that he actually means it. And we've now had 16 years of quiet on the Lebanese border. There were one or two incidents, but other than that, it's been absolute quiet for 16 years. We haven't had that many years or even a few years of quiet on the Lebanese border since the 1960s. So for all of the criticisms of how the Second Lebanon War in 2006 was fought, and there were major failures there, nevertheless, the bottom line was pretty good. Uh, Israel did achieve more deterrence than we understood at the time. The question is to what extent the 16 years of quiet can be attributed to the deterrence from the war. Part of it certainly, yes. But also until around 2018, Hezbollah was so invested in the civil war in Syria that they couldn't afford a two-front war. Well, it's now four years since they basically redeployed back into Lebanon. And maybe enough is enough from their point of view. It's time to go back to their primarily jihadi identity and jihadi vocation because they're also accused of, what kind of jihadi organization are you? You haven't gone to war against Israel. You haven't done anything just about for 16 years. So um, there are two possibilities here, and I don't think anybody knows at this point which is true. And Israel is in a difficult position here, because on the one hand, we don't want to make further concessions in the negotiations, and and another and ostensibly the final round of talks is about to happen any day now. And here I would like just, I mean, maybe it's worthwhile mentioning the good offices of the United States, which is mediating. Uh, I know the mediator, Amos Hochstein, from the administration, American administration, a special advisor to uh, President uh, Biden, and I think he's uh, he's doing a good job, and uh, and and I think the the ground is set for signing on a good compromise, unless again there is no good faith and no goodwill from Hezbollah. I agree, and um, as I'm saying, Israel was apparently has already made some concessions and was apparently willing to make some final ones. But now it would look as if we're doing it under the threat of a Hezbollah attack, which of course makes it harder for any government, especially a caretaker government that has elections in just over two months. We also can't give in here to what is in effect blackmail because, uh, okay, so this time it's uh, the the Karish uh, rig and next time it's another rig and and then it's other natural Dangerous precedent, very dangerous precedent could be. So we can't really give in here. On the other hand, we do not want an escalation with Hezbollah. Of course, we never want it. It's, it's not in our interest. But um, I think maybe, by the way, we should do a, a podcast just about what the, the Lebanese situation is and what a war with Hezbollah will look like. I don't think that most people, even in Israel, appreciate. And I don't think people appreciate it, even though the IDF has been... Um, at least partly briefing the public for a decade already, the next war is going to be very, very ugly. The Israeli home front 
When I say home front, that just means Israel's civilian population is going to be hit very, very hard in a way that we have never been hit in the history of the conflict. Yeah, they, they have in their arsenal at least 150,000 rockets. And now they are in a major overall where they are turning a lot of these rockets into a precision-guided um, uh, rockets, which would be very dangerous for us. Um, going back maybe to the grandstanding and the Iranians' interest here, I'm uh, except that uh, they would like to put the pressure points, again, as I mentioned, uh, on, on, on Israel and the United States vis-a-vis the... Uh, the nuclear uh, negotiations. Um, I am not sure that it is Iranians' uh, interest to, let's say, spend the Hezbollah uh, card prematurely from their point of view. As they uh, read the, 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 the situation like everyone else, Israel is uh, preparing for a potential um, operation uh, in against the nuclear facilities in Iran, if the uh, circumstances, I would say, um, uh, determine that uh, we, we have to do it. They always keep the Hezbollah card as a deterrence against Israel, against an operation in Iran, because then they can use Hezbollah. If they spend the card now, because the operation in Iran is not imminent, that could be something of... Um, again, against the, the interest of Hezbollah, of, of Iran, as it was in 2006, where they uh, reprimanded Nasrallah for going into this. The common assumption is that Iran built up the Hezbollah capabilities. And just by the way, in 2000, Hezbollah had approximately 7,000 rockets. In 2006, when the war break out, broke out 12,000 rockets, and today it's something like 150,000 rockets. The assumption is that Iran built this incredible capability. No military in the world has that many rockets, precisely for the, what you're talking about. If and when Israel ever decides to attack the Iranian nuclear program, or as a matter of fact, if the U.S. does it, now they have the capability to hit us massively from our border. Iran doesn't have a major capability to hit us from their own territory. Now they have some more uh, missiles that can reach Israel, they have drones, but that's this is the last partly, couple of years. This is partly why they wanted to entrench in Syria, actually, to open a second front for us in the north. And so far, Israel has been quite successful in keeping them at, at bay there in Syria. Okay. We thought that we were in a state of mutual deterrence with Hezbollah. Um, Nasrallah may have decided that that's no longer the case. It's time to change the equation. And so less than a month after the last round with Hamas, which uh, was, I say Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad again, in just a matter of weeks, we could find ourselves in a much, much bigger round, this time with Hezbollah. And there is no comparison between the Hezbollah threat and either the Hamas or the Palestinian Islamic sure, Jihad sure. threat. And Israel's interest has always been to stretch the laws between operations or between wars as much as possible. Uh, first of all, you know, to, to avoid casualties, of course. And secondly, is that our capabilities keep increasing over time. So, for instance, uh, in a year from now, we may have a laser capability, which could be quite instrumental and also a deterrence against any kind of Hezbollah threats. Um, so uh, I'm sure 
that uh, you know that although Israel will always say that we will know how to defend ourselves and we will, um, there is no interest for Israel to have a, a war uh, with the Hezbollah, and uh, so there is a lot of um, uh, I would say negotiations, intensive negotiations, uh, you know, in, in in back channels. And here again, the United States is indispensable and instrumental in bringing about. A, um, a, um, a, a quick agreement on the demarcation with Lebanon and, of course, to avoid any uh, escalation. So another area where the U.S. is instrumental, uh, for better or for worse, is in terms of the Iranian nuclear deal. And at this point, uh, we'll just say a few words, I think, because we don't know uh, there may be a deal in a matter of days, and there may be no deal whatsoever. And I think that's probably the most one can say at this point based on uh, the media reporting, and I'm not sure that the people who actually see the classified information have a much better uh, ability to assess it than what I just said now. Yeah, except from uh, what we know and, and also can assume, there are two uh, sticking points in these negotiations. Uh, Jack, you want to mention them? Maybe? Okay, but first of all, let me just say... Uh, like I said, we're just going to say a few words about this today. We did an entire podcast about the issue on June 3rd, our second podcast. So for listeners who are interested in this, I refer you to that. You can find it on the IDDF podcast, Israel Defense and Diplomacy podcast. Um, and we will, of course, come back to the issue in detail once again in the next couple of weeks, if there is a deal and if there isn't a deal. But there were a couple of primary sticking points at the moment. One was the Iranian demand that the U.S. remove the, uh, the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, from the American terrorist list. It appears that o President Obama is sticking to his previous refusal to do so. A second issue was that the U.S. in effect agreed to close the, the open nuclear files. Now, there were a few sites which um, are suspected of having nuclear materials. That would be an indication that the Iranian, the military nuclear program is continuing or was at least continuing as of a couple of years ago. And um, the U.S. demanded that the IAE, the International Atomic Energy Agency, be able to inspect these sites. That's actually a position that the other P6 support. The Iranians want these files and have wanted these files closed for the last few years. They have a real problem here because if they allow inspections and the inspections find that there, there were nuclear materials, that basically proves that they've been lying all these years to their public and to the international community that they do have a nuclear program. Just as Israel exposed them uh, during this uh, fabulous uh, Mossad operation where they brought in all their uh, nuclear uh, archives, which showed that they had a military nuclear program, and when at the same during the time they said they didn't. Right, they claimed that they didn't have a program until two thousand and three, but of course everybody knew they had one at the program at the time. There wasn't too much doubt about it. The nuclear archive. Uh, this is one of the greatest intelligence operations I think of all times, but it demonstrated that they had the program until 2003 with indications that it was probably ongoing, but no proof. Now, 
if these sites are inspected and they show that there are nuclear materials there, that will be proof that they're continuing to lie to their people. And for any regime, that's a problem, certainly for the Islamic Republic. Those are the two primary issues at the moment. Uh, there are some others. From what we know, the U.S. does not appear to be backing off its positions. Um, and of course, the question is what the Iranians can, can do here. I think that there's one critical problem, and just for those listeners who aren't familiar with our positions, I'm a strong supporter of the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan. Uh, uh, what's the full title? Comprehensive? Agreement. Um, Agreement. Uh, in any event, um, as the best of the bad options, and you, Donnie, have uh, far greater reservations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I was, and, and, and still I'm against it because I think that um, a, a bad and a weak uh, agreement right now uh, will strengthen the Iranian position because it doesn't limit them with terrorism, it doesn't limit them with the, the, the testing ballistic missiles, so they will be in a position to re resume their nuclear activities anytime, where they will already have um, all the infrastructure for um, a warhead that they can put uh, on top of a missile. And on top of that, they will get uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, which again, they will use for terrorism, they will use for other uh, activities, and to further legitimize and strengthen the position of this regime internally, because there is a growing discontent in Iran against this regime. So all these things, I believe... Um, are a, a quite a, uh, a counterweight against a weak agreement to be signed. Okay, I'm a half uh, full glass kind of guy. I think a less than perfect deal is better than no deal at all. And the fact that the deal does not restrict them in terms of their terrorist activity, in terms of their regional expansionism, in terms of ballistic missile and other uh, missile development. That's all true, but that was true in 2015 when the deal was signed. So that hasn't changed. And um, think of what happens if we don't have this deal. There is nothing to restrain Iran from crossing the line, and they are very, very close today. They've got enough fissile material for the... They've already got enough fissile material for the first bomb and probably already the second at this point and enough for a half a dozen within another few months. Except in such eventuality, they will raise the entire international community against them. I don't think that uh, Europe or the United States um, can afford... The Iranians, the Iranians are, are, are playing with everyone, you know, in the brinkmanship. Um, but if they will continue, if they're in, in the absence of an, of an agreement, if they will continue to enrich maybe all the way up to 90%, I think there will be strong repercussions from the international community. So, well, there will certainly be repercussions. The question is whether at the moment, with the international community so distracted by Ukraine and the U.S. by China, Taiwan whether there is a strong international community today. I think this would be the worst timing for that to happen. Right, but certainly it will uh, allow great legitimacy for a potential operation by the IAF, Israeli Air Force. Well, I don't think um, the international community wants to see that. Of course not. That's why they should be very strong 
and try to demand more concessions from Iran. Iran needs this uh, agreement more than uh, the international community, although they say otherwise. That may be the case. As a matter of fact, it probably is the case. But here's one of the problems, and I think here we will agree. I think that the Biden administration, just like the Obama administration in 2015, correctly or incorrectly is perceived as being more interested in a deal than the Iranians. And the result, if that's the perception, the result is that you negotiate from a position of weakness. And I do believe, again, I, I thought I was a strong supporter of the JCPOA as the best of the bad options, but still I thought the U.S. got out-negotiated in 2015 because the Iranians, uh, to a certain extent, sat back and said, okay, we, we can live without this, and I think we have the same problem today. Yes, but uh, as you mentioned, Chuck, you know, we are uh, probably going to find out in a few days, so this is not a time for us to speculate whether they'll reach an agreement or not, but uh, certainly uh, in any eventuality where they do or they do not, if there is a, uh, of course, in a, a breakup of the negotiation, <clears throat> we will address this issue in any case in one of the future uh, Right, so uh, we'll come back podcasts. to this soon. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's say a few words. There are, I think, still a few outstanding issues from Operation uh, Breaking Dawn, the operation just a few weeks ago in Gaza against the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and I got it right this time, not against Hamas. Uh, first of all, at the moment, we're in something of a crisis with Egypt because the Egyptians apparently felt that Israel did not give them sufficient time, enough diplomatic rope to try and prevent an outbreak of uh, fighting. I think we gave them a few days, but... It, in any event, they're unhappy about that. So let's start off uh, with that issue. Yeah, well, the, the Egyptians feel like uh, they got some egg on their face and that uh, we slapped them on the face because they were um, negotiating this uh, truce with uh, the PIG, Palestinian uh, Islamic uh, Jihad. And here again, I think in parentheses we say, Israel does not negotiate with terror organizations, but when it comes to issues of uh, ceasefires and humanitarian issues, it's something else. So I think we have to be very specific when we say we do not negotiate with terrorists on political issues or any kind of political settlements, of course, and we will not negotiate with anyone who doesn't recognize our right to exist, of course, and, and is uh, actually uh, bent on our destruction. But um, in any case, um, Egypt was right there in the, in the thick of things. Uh, they uh, agreed, or they pretty much were, were very instrumental in stopping the, uh, the fire, and uh, they also made some promises to the pitch which uh, they shouldn't have undertaken, but in any case, that they will take care of uh, the release of two uh, Islamic, Palestinian Islamic Jihad's uh, prisoners in the hand of Israel. Of course, Israel is uh, not uh, willing to, to do that, and uh, so either there was a misunderstanding between Israel and the, the Egyptians on that, uh, or misunderstanding between the Egyptians and the and the Pidge. In any case, uh, Egypt showed a lot of uh, of um, displeasure uh, with the, the Israeli position of not releasing these prisoners, and also I believe that they are quite 
uh, miffed maybe by the ongoing intensive um, prevention operations of Israel in the Palestinian territories, uh, namely uh, Jenin and, and Nablus, which are hardcore um, Islamist um, bastions. So all these things together uh, have shown some discontent, uh, which came, became a little bit public. But I think it's both countries' interest to uh, iron out all the differences, and I believe they will. First, I must say, I was a little bit surprised by the Egyptian response. This isn't the first time that they've negotiated between Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, especially Israel and Hamas. I think they understand uh, what the sides want. And this comes after a number of years in which the Israeli-Egyptian relationship has really deepened enormously, uh, surprising strategic cooperation. The Egyptians at one point, I believe in 2018, I could be off a little, but I think it was then, even quietly asking Israel to send in its air force to bomb um, Islamic State terrorists in Sinai, in other words, in Egyptian territory. Countries do not normally invite in other countries, especially former enemies, to bomb in their territories. I mean, that was an incredible indication of how this relationship, which we used to speak of the cold peace, has really come a long way. It's not very much covered by the media, Chuck, but uh, there are, I would say, pretty much hundreds of, of Egyptian casualties in the Sinai by um, sporadic attacks from ISIS on Egyptian soldiers in the Sinai. And because they were not succeeding in doing it on their own, uh, when I say they weren't succeeding, I mean for a couple of decades, they finally asked Israel to help them. So when you have that closer relationship and the military relationship uh, cooperation goes far beyond that, I was a bit surprised by their response. But in any event, that's where things stand. And I believe as we speak, or at least as of yesterday, the head of the Shin Bet had been sent to Egypt as a special envoy on behalf of the prime minister, the defense minister, to try and uh, smooth Egyptian feathers. And hopefully, as you're saying, uh, hopefully that'll happen. In the meantime, since the last round, uh, Israel has greatly increased the number of permits for Palestinian workers from Gaza to to enter Israel. We're now up to 15,000 and uh, 20,000 in the not-too-distant future. And even growing, yes. And even 30,000, you're saying, maybe down the line. So far, the ceasefire is holding. I say so far, so far because the, the lulls between the rounds have grown shorter and shorter in recent years, despite Israel's attempts to promote economic growth in Gaza. So we'll see how that uh, does. And of course, if there is a flare-up with Hezbollah, what happens on the Gaza front? Do both Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad stay out? Uh, Hezbollah stayed out of the last round uh, with PIJ and previously the previous rounds with Hamas. But it's not at all certain that that will be the case in the future. Right. We know this is part of our, uh, our um, security challenges. Uh, I would say right now, the main two challenges that uh, we have is firstly Iran, Secondly, Hezbollah, Hamas, and Pidge surrounding us with these uh, rockets. And uh, again, the Palestinians uh, rank third. 
yeah. Uh, but they have a way of reminding us of their presence. Unfortunately, yes. Okay, I think uh, we'll wrap it up with that, Danny. Yeah, that concludes another, I would say, interesting, successful uh, podcast of uh, IDDF. I enjoyed it very much, as usual, and uh, we'll look forward to the next time. Two weeks. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. Hosted by Chad Freilich, featuring Danny Ayalon. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast at wherever it is that you download your podcasts from, and please consider making a tax-deductible donation to our work via our website at www.miriaminstitute.org. I want to invite you to share this podcast with your friends and family, and to submit your questions and comments which you can send directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. Thank you again for your time and for your attention, and we look forward to the next time we meet here at the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands. <laughs>